I want to invite you this morning, uh, as I did last week, but to turn with me in your bulletins this morning. I think it's going to be easier to follow along this morning from the passages that are printed in your bulletins under the uh, section of the New Testament readings. You can find it on page uh, five of your bulletins. I'm going to look there, uh, and then I'm actually going to be referring uh, quite a bit to that Ezekiel passage as well for our sermon this morning. This is the second uh, in a series that I've called uh, Peace on Earth, uh, something of a theology of peace as we head into the Christmas season. And last week, we began our series with the God of peace, a good place to begin. We noted there that, that peace isn't just an idea that's out there, a, a virtue that we should apply. Instead, it's a very part of the personhood of God. It's an attribute, if you will, of God. And therefore, peace is personal. Peace is an intimate thing. And, and as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our call then is not just to seek after an abstract idea but instead to seek after the God of peace and the peace that comes from the God of peace. And thus last week it came to us in the form of all of those benedictions that we read. May the God of peace be with you is the call that comes, the, the personal call related to it. Today what we're going to explore is how the God of peace gives peace. Now, we touched on this last week just a little bit, but I kind of parenthetically put it aside until this week. The, the question is, what does it mean that God gives to us peace? Uh, to say this another way, if last week we considered the God of peace, then this week what we're going to look at and consider is the peace of God. Okay? The God of peace last week, the peace of God this week. Let me begin by reading some of these passages that are here in your bulletin, uh, and, uh, and then I'll pray and we'll launch into this. So first of all, uh, the one that sets the tone for, uh, for our series, uh, the, angel, the angelic heralds uh, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Following that, words from Jesus in Luke 12, 51. Do not think that I have come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. I have not come, this is the Matthew version of this, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Do you think that I've come to bring peace? I tell you I haven't, but a sword. And now John 14, 27, a verse that we looked at last week, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's pray. God of peace, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the promise of your presence, particularly with your people assembled together to worship you. 
according to the provisions which you have set forth in your word, we are here today to say not only that you are great, but as your people to listen to you. And so we pray that you would help us to hear well, that you would help us to, to comprehend this peace that has been given and even entrusted to us today. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I trust that in just reading those few verses, you may be already familiar with them, but I trust that in reading them, you caught the tension that exists if only between the very first two of those verses, the, the heralding of peace on earth, and then Jesus kind of querying us, do you, do you think that that's what I came for? to bring peace on earth and, and, and saying, no, 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 that's not what it is. It, this, this statement by Jesus throws a pretty significant monkey wrench into the idea of peace on earth or into at least a general concept of peace on earth or what we'd like to think of as peace on earth. And, and you know, sometimes if you read a passage, well, always, if you read a passage in context, you're going to understand it better and you might think, well, it doesn't actually say what it appears to say when you take it out of its context. But in this case, if I were to read to you more of the context right around this, it would be worse. And so I'm going to do uh, exactly that. I'm just going to continue on from that section, the next couple of verses in Luke chapter 12. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three, they will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, if nothing else, if nothing else, these verses, these words from Jesus have got to put a little bit of a check on what we think about when we think about peace on earth. They've got, to, they've got to shape our pie-in-the-sky vision, our grandiose idea that might be there with the phrase peace on earth. And, and what I'd like to do in light of those verses in particular is give for us now a, a, a couple of parameters for understanding peace, for thinking about peace. And, and as I give these, this isn't the substance of the sermon today, but I think it's necessary to provide us with this before we talk more about peace. Uh, we've got to understand a couple of things that the Bible is saying and is not saying with respect to peace. So I'm not going to try and explain these in any kind of depth. I'm just going to state them out there based on even just these passages that we've read. First of all, we want to be very sure from the passage particularly that we found in John chapter 14, 27, the one I just read for us, that peace is indeed promised and given, and it is an extraordinary peace that is offered to the people of God. We don't want to pretend in any way that it is not. Jesus is giving to his disciples, and through the word and through his presence and through his spirit, giving to the church in ages to come something truly wonderful. 
It's not only something that will take place in the future, but instead, the clear intention of Jesus is to deposit something into them and, and, and into us now. Right? My, my peace, I'm giving to you. My peace, I'm leaving with you, and I'm giving it to you now. So peace is promised, and peace is given, and Jesus says, it's not amorphous peace, it's my peace. It's so definitive, it's so much a part of who I am, I'm giving that to you. Peace is promised and peace is given. That's point number one. Point number two, though, in light of what we're reading in these few verses, is that peace is not universal. Okay, that should be completely clear from what we have just read, and we know it, experientially as well. The promised peace of Jesus is embodied in the person of Jesus. And thus, the peace, the presence of it, or the absence of it, is inseparable from how you respond to this Jesus. It's not free-floating, it's part of the person of Jesus. So how you respond to Jesus determines whether or not you have this peace that is being described. It's not universal. I don't mean to be uh, crass with this in any way, but, uh, but just to understand the culture in which we live, you know, it, it wasn't too long ago, maybe it was more in the days uh, that, uh, that I was growing up than it is in present, and for that I'd say praise God and thank God, where if you were in a beauty pageant and you were asked at the end of the beauty pageant or at some point in the beauty pageant in the interview portion, what do you want more than anything else? You had to answer world peace. You, know, you had to say what I want more than anything else is world peace. Well, neither angelic heralds nor Jesus is saying what I want more than anything else is world peace. We need to hear that right now, peace is not universal. So peace is promised and given. Peace is not universal. And the third point is this. Peace is not complete. It is not yet a final peace, a consummate peace. We have a deposit on the final peace. We have been entrusted with the peace that is to come, and we have a deposit on that that we're in possession of right now. The final peace will be complete, and it will be full, and it will be worldwide, it will be universe-wide. That final peace will be universal, but it is not complete now. We don't have that yet. To use the words of Scripture, what we can say is this. All of the swords have not yet been made into plowshares yet. The beating is taking place to make them into plowshares, but they're not there yet. Which is why, which is why, as Christians in this world, we still struggle to have peace. We, we still struggle with it. We still see warfare 
all around us. We still see dissension all around us. We are not yet in the place of everlasting bliss. Visions of rapture don't burst on our sight all the time. I don't spend all of my days praising Jesus. I long for it. I look forward to that day, but we're not there yet. In the meantime, what we are is we're the church militant, right? We're the church militant in this world, the church at war. We're not yet the church triumphant. So, so keep those in mind because they're, they're essential not only for understanding this sermon today, but they're essential because we are so prone Maybe it's because we're prone in every age to this, but it seems to me that we're so culturally prone, especially at Christmas time, to think of peace in a way that is other than what is being described in the Bible. It's promised, it's not universal, and it is not yet complete. And I hope that that is not just depressing and discouraging. I think it's biblical. I think it's true. I think it allows us then once we've established that, this, to ask a right, to ask with freedom, well, what does the Bible have to say? What is promised? If that's true, if it's not yet complete, and all those other things that I said about, what, what do we have? What can we count on now? What can we reckon on now? What can we pray for now? What can we try to exercise now in our lives? Because clearly, Jesus is giving us something he, he's, he's giving us something not only in John 14, there are so many places that we could turn to, uh, but he's promising it to us and giving it to his disciples. Think, think for a moment of the end of John. Think of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. What does he say to the disciples when he sees them? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Three times in John 20, two different occasions, but three times, peace be with you. Jesus is, is conveying something. He's giving something. He's not just promising something for the future, although that's true. He's conveying and giving something to us now. Uh, we acknowledged this last week, I think, but when we talk about peace, particularly when uh, we talk about it in its Old Testament concept of shalom. It's, it's, it's a broad and wide concept. Uh, but what I'd like to do today is, is, though there are many things that you can talk about with respect to peace, what is peace and what does it look like in one's life, I think we can at least talk about three streams of peace that flow into and that contribute most significantly to this river of shalom. What is the peace that Jesus is giving and bringing into the world today? I'd like to highlight then these three as we go along, and the three correspond to the verses that you'll find following on pages five and six of the bulletin. So first, let me read for us Colossians 1, 19 through 20. In this section, Paul's in the middle of a gorgeous hymn about Christ and his preeminence in all of the world, over all of the world, before all the world. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. It's not too much to say that this is the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus is a ministry of making peace between man and God. And there's nothing that humanity needs more than peace with God. With our collective fall into sin through our first parents, Adam and Eve, and then through our own willful participation in this rebellion of humanity, we have created, declared, and engaged in warfare against the God of peace. We declared war against the God of peace with our sin. We became enemies and gave birth to enmity between God and man. We created division. We created separation between the God of peace and us. And while peace has a wide meaning, especially as it is applied to fallen humanity, that peace which is promised is going to always have with it this idea of bringing things back together taking care of divisions that have taken place. And so as Jesus speaks, promising peace, he's talking about peace uniting, peace healing, and peace reconciling God and man. Now, the the earlier passage that we read, if you've got your uh, bulletins open there, from Ezekiel, speaks about exactly this kind of reconciliation between God and man. And the term that it uses there to describe it is God's making of a covenant of peace with us. Verse 26 says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, which then allows God and man to dwell together. They can't dwell together as enemies. Enemies don't dwell together. And so it is necessary, if you're going to dwell with God, to be with God, that a covenant of peace be established. And in order for that covenant of peace to take place, in order for that to happen, well, the problem must be dealt with. That, that is to say, we have to be cleansed. We have to be forgiven. The sin has to be ended. And that's what's described for us in verse 23 of Ezekiel. They shall not, that is humanity, Israel in this case, but us as well, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all of the backslidings into which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. We have to walk after God. We have to be cleansed in order to be in this covenant of peace. Uh, Verse 24, they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Now that's all hopeful to us until we reflect for about 15 seconds on our own lives. And we go, well, how can this take place? 
No, how can you do this? How do you make this a reality? And of course, in Ezekiel, the, the way you make this a reality is by bringing in a king. You, you bring in my king, David. He will be shepherd over them. The way I am going to establish the reign and the rule of peace in this world, the covenant of peace, is through a king that I'm bringing into this world. And as uh, Rex explained to us earlier, as Colossians and other places affirm, this king then is not David, uh, but a Davidic-like king, great David's greater son, as the phrase goes, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the means by which this king comes in and affects the covenant of peace is not the sword, but instead the cross, and particularly the blood of the cross. Now, in the Old Testament, peacemaking and covenant making were bloody affairs. Uh, for this sermon this morning, I really wanted, as our Old Testament reading, to have one of the descriptions of the peace offerings that are found in Leviticus. The people of God are to, under the command of God, offer peace offerings to establish this peace between God and man. But the reason I chose not to include one of those in our reading this morning is because they're just too bloody. They are, they are literally bloody awful. They are so much of a bloody mess that I thought, I can't, I can't actually, I'm not afraid to read things like that, but I thought, no, really, really, I can't do that right before Christmas. So, so let's put it like this. Covenant making and peacemaking in the Old Testament required blood. If you're going to make covenant, if you're going to make peace, it requires blood at the outset of that. The enemy has to be destroyed in order to do that. Covenant breaking and peace breaking in the Old Covenant cost blood. It cost the blood of the offending party. And at the cross, here's what takes place. At the cross, the covenant-keeping Jesus, the, the peace-bringing Jesus, takes the place of the covenant-breaking, peace-breaking humanity. So the, the one who keeps covenant says, no, I'll take place of the one who breaks covenant and I will take on me the cost of that covenant breaking, and the cost of that covenant breaking is the shedding of blood. And by then, the shedding of the blood of the cross, that which had been broken, becomes that which is healed. The, the very thing that was the cost becomes that which is paid in order for peace to be made, in order for the covenant of peace to be established with us. God, he made him who knew no sin to be that, to be sin for us. That's what takes place on the cross. He made the one who was the covenant keeper to be the covenant breaker so that there might be then peace between man and God through the blood 
of the cross. So in the first place then, the peace that Jesus offers to us is the peace which is most important, and that is to say it is peace with God that is offered and given to us by Jesus. In the second place, what do we mean when, when, what does Jesus mean when he says, my peace I give to you? The peace Jesus offers is peace with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Let me read, turn one page over to page six in your bulletins, Ephesians 2.14. We could read this whole section, but I'll just read this one verse of it. For he himself, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Both of us there refers to Jew and to Gentile. In the Old Testament, the division between man, the strife that exists between mankind, is seen particularly in the division, in the distinction, in the separation between Israel and the rest of the world. God shows the distinction. He shows what strife looks like, what enmity looks like on the man-to-man level by distinguishing and separating Israel from everybody else. And the distinction is made clear. It's made plain by God in all sorts of ways in the Old Testament. There There are borders, there are walls, there are curtains, there's rights, there's circumcision, there's laws, there's covenants. There are all sorts of things to show and to proclaim loud and clear there's a difference between the people with whom I have established covenant and those that haven't. That's the distinction in humanity. Those with whom God has established covenant and those with whom he has not established covenant, and Israel and the exclusion of the Gentiles shows us exactly that. But Paul says that Jesus, being the Lord of peace, Jesus is, he says, our peace. Peace is personal once again, and the person of Jesus makes peace between one person and another person, between Jew and Gentiles, by taking down this dividing wall of hostility. It has been broken down, and as a result, God has made both of us one. Now, in that Ezekiel passage, if we went up before it, we would see that Ezekiel is commanded to give a symbol of this. Take two sticks, one stick representing the northern kingdom of Israel, and one stick representing the southern kingdom of Judah, and bring the two sticks together, these two who have been divided. And, and, and so we've got not only a division between those who are in covenant, uh, the Israel of God, and those who are outside of God's covenant, but now within those who are in covenant, there's a division as well that shows to us this strife that exists from man to man, so that the two kingdoms are divided themselves. And God says, I'm going to bring these sticks together. And and I'm going to make out of two sticks, one stick. I'm going to bring that which has been divided together. I'm going to heal that which has been cut and rent asunder. And how am I going to do that? 
one king. How do you heal two kingdoms? By making one king over two divided kingdoms. Now, that day envisioned a, a, a reunification of the northern kingdom, a gathering up of those who were scattered and dispersed uh, along with Judah and reuniting that. But when we bring that into the new covenant, if we follow through the prophets, had that been the only thing that was done in the new covenant, what we read is it would have been too small. Reconciliation of man to man within Israel would have been too small a thing. And so God says, I will also make you, Messiah, a covenant to the peoples, a light to the nations, so that this reconciliation portrayed in Israel and Judah now extends beyond as well, now includes all of the nations being healed and living together as well. How does that take place? Does everybody live at peace right now? No, everybody doesn't live at peace right now. That unification that takes place between Jews and Gentiles and the nations of the earth takes place amongst those who bow the knee to King Jesus. I will establish one king over them. And the, the locus, if you will, of this peace between men on earth is within the church. It's within this place, the people of God gathered up together. No distinction now between Jew and Gentile. But instead, God has made the two into one as his people. Now, to be sure, as we're talking now about peace on earth and people want to talk about it universally across the board, to be sure, the Bible says to us as Christians, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men, right? That's in Romans chapter 12. Insofar as it depends on us, live peaceably with all people. And in this case, Paul's not talking about with your fellow believers in Christ. Paul's saying with, with the unbelievers who are around you, try to live peaceably with them. And hopefully, hopefully in our lives, as a result of living our faith, of caring for others, of doing good to others, maybe, maybe there's some extension of peace that goes out from us into the world. Hopefully that's the case. But don't count on it. Okay, don't count on it. Jesus was the Prince of Peace. Jesus lived that person uh, perfectly, and they hated him for it. And they hated him for it, and they crucified him for it. And so what we've got to keep in mind, and, and what we don't want to misunderstand or misapply, is this idea of peace on earth. It is to be between us, between believers, among us, it has been established. Paul calls it the bond of peace. And that's kind of covenant language as well, the covenant of peace. Paul says, amongst you is the bond of peace. We'll look more at this one uh, next week about how do we actually do that, because all of us know that even amongst those who bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's actually not all that easy all the time to live at peace with one another. It's actually quite a struggle for us to live even in the church at peace with one another. So when Jesus promises that, he talks about peace with God, he talks about peace with fellow believers, and then the third stream in this river of shalom that Jesus gives and that Jesus promises is peace 
within, or if we want to say it this way, peace within or with ourselves. Let me read for us Philippians 4, 6, and 7 printed in your bulletins as well. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God which surpasses understanding. We might think of this as an inner peace, a peace of conscience, a repose, a calmness, the diminishment of fear and anxiety. But this is the peace that is offered to us, and it comes, this peace, this inexplicable peace, from being in the presence of Jesus. We can't explain it. You can sit in the presence of Jesus and know the peace that comes from him inside of our souls. On the front of your bulletin, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's the kind of peace that's being spoken of here. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In me you may have peace. Peace with God is personal. Peace with one another is personal. Peace within is personal as well. It's personal because it's in Jesus that you have inward peace. Not in some other way. It's in Jesus that we have inward peace. And this, too, is a unifying peace. It might not seem so at first, but it's a unifying peace because we all know, we all experience the tension that goes on in our lives. We know how we are pulled in our hearts one direction and then the other direction. We know that there is warfare within us, warfare at least between the flesh and between the spirit. And Jesus speaks into that tension. Jesus speaks into the divided soul and says, into that divided soul, into the tensions that are inside of your heart, I speak peace to that place. David prayed in light of the divisions of our heart in Psalm 86, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's what Jesus is promising here. Jesus is promising a heart-mending peace. We have broken hearts. Jesus is saying, I'm giving peace to a broken heart. I'm pulling together pieces of a broken heart with my peace. Our divided hearts need peace, and Jesus promises exactly that. We have a deposit on this peace right now. We will have, when Jesus returns, the consummation of all that he has promised. But now, even in the midst of this world, he gives and he promises peace with God, peace with one another, and peace within. 
as well. The gift and those promises belong to those who, with shepherds, will go to Jesus. Will go to Jesus. And so the call of the sermon, the call, the desire for people to have peace is the call to, with shepherds, go, come to Jesus. And that Jesus, who has promised to be with us, is the one who says, and I will give you my peace by being with me. And we strive together after it. Lord, thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for the hope that is contained. Thank you for the peace that has been given. And thank you for the peace that has been promised. And we pray that you would help us to abide in you and then in that. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand.